Thank you so much for joining But I'm Not Wrong podcast. Today we're going to talk about the pending NRA bankruptcy, the ongoing crisis of migrant children at the southern U.S. border, the uproar over the new Snow White ride at Disney, the sexual misconduct inquiry in the Canadian Armed Forces, Florida following Georgia and curbing access to voting, and the misinformation about how vaccines were rushed into existence. So let's get into it. I'm sure you've heard about the National Rifle Association's financial and spending woes since they first came to light in 2019. Not only have the most senior NRA executives acknowledged that they used the organization to benefit themselves and their friends, but NRA chief Wayne Lapierre outdid his gun-toting buddies with his $300,000 suits and outlandish perks like access to luxury yacht trips and other benefits from NRA contractors. So now Lapierre and his pals are scurrying for cover, trying to file for bankruptcy to protect their company from dissolution since last year, New York Attorney General Letitia James sued the NRA, alleging that Lapierre and his top officials were using the NRA as their own little piggy bank. How's that going, you ask? Well, shockingly, Lapierre didn't actually tell his full board nor his general counsel in advance of the bankruptcy plan. Oh boy. And he was sorry that he didn't disclose the free trips he accepted on a yacht owned by David McKenzie. McKenzie is a California film producer who is linked to firms that the Attorney General's office alleges received tens of millions of dollars in contracts over the years from the NRA. In fact, Lapierre acknowledged in court filings that he had not filled out the NRA's conflict of interest disclosure forms for several years. But he's done so now, under Attorney General James's eagle eye, in preparation for the hearing in New York. And now, trying to avoid the dissolution of his precious company, Lapierre is trying for the Hail Mary, steering his company towards bankruptcy. Even better, he's trying to move the company from New York, where it has been chartered since 1871. Where is he trying to move it to? To Rootin' Tootin', Texas. The New York Attorney General has asked the judge to reject the organization's bankruptcy petition, saying it was filed simply to avoid accountability in court. The judge was told Lapierre's only goal is to cling to the power. Now, if the judge allows the NRA to seek bankruptcy, James's office has asked the court to appoint a trustee to manage the organization, replacing Lapierre and his team. Of course, Lapierre is fighting that, as he is the group's most prominent figure, having led the NRA's aggressive counter-responses to efforts to seek gun control in the wake of mass shootings. Of course, the NRA want him to stay at the helm where he's been for four decades. His record for being a fundraising powerhouse is unparalleled. As an aside, that's good because their legal bill at just one of their law firms for 13 months was $24 million. Holy cannoli! 
So we'll see whether the NRA will get its wish to huddle within the bubble of bankruptcy. I hope that they do remove LaPierre and his cronies and install a trustee. Clearly, they're not to be trusted. For instance, current president Carolyn Meadows acknowledged into the record that she destroyed notes and records in advance of a subpoena from the New York Attorney General. Attorneys for the NRA also acknowledged during the hearings that cringeworthy activity had occurred in the past. Oh, but they were trustworthy and well-run now. Uh-huh. But the real thing here is that the attempted move of the association into bankruptcy to avoid dissolution is to avoid legal accountability, like it's a haven for wrongdoers. The move to Texas is simply a sideshow, like a hidden pea under a cup. Look over here. No, over here. But I especially like Attorney General Letitia James's quote, and I'm just going to leave it here. The NRA's claimed financial status has finally met its moral status. Bankrupt. She's not wrong. The migrant crisis on the southern border ebbs and flows into our line of sight depending on what's filling up the media airwaves on any given day. Some days it's all about the sight of children wrapped in shiny mylar and some days it's been like it's wearing Wonder Woman's invisible cloak. Problem is, under the former administration, we all knew that the former commander-in-chief had zero interest in the conditions that children and their families were incarcerated in at the border. Stephen Miller was most likely the architect of that program and it sure embodied the full breadth of compassion that described the Trump years. But although Biden has repeatedly warned migrants not to come to the United States, his administration was caught completely off guard by the sheer numbers that did seem to rush the gates, so to speak, after he gained the presidency. And boy, the optics have been off for the first hundred days. First, the numbers. I can't even be fair about it. Even though Biden did repeatedly warn migrants not to come, his administration had to know that they would come. Why? For several truly obvious reasons. One, administration change. Trump wasn't in charge anymore. And truly, people were sending their kids to travel thousands of miles under dangerous conditions because they believed that the new administration would be much kinder and more welcoming. Heck, anyone who has seen Biden on TV has got to think that this is a kinder and more welcoming kind of guy, right? On that alone, there was reason to believe that they might get a better experience. Okay. Two, seasonality. At this time, every year, there is a seasonal spring surge that usually peaks in March. It was predictable. Entirely predictable, people. Three, hurricanes. There were a couple of bad hurricanes in Central America, making the shitty conditions there just a little bit more miserable for people. And four, the pandemic. America always is the land of hope. And America has vaccines. So get your butts to America and get the vaccine and be saved. 
How could this be a surprise to the Biden administration that the border was going to be overwhelmed? And why did it take so long for the Biden-friendly media to get on to Biden's case about the numbers of kids wrapped in mylar sitting in Trump's cages? In this case, thank goodness for Fox News. Now that's a sentence you won't hear out of my mouth very often. So Biden's administration and Vice President Harris, who is in charge of this issue, are now working hard. The fact that the violence, hunger, and damage from hurricanes in Central America is forcing migrants and their children to flee remains. Vice President Harris has been meeting with the Triangle countries to address the underlying problems that cause the mass migrations and is also trying to involve other countries to find solutions and provide international assistance and coordination with humanitarian groups. The overcrowded conditions in the facilities are also finally being addressed as well. Children were being kept in custody for an average of 133 hours over a month ago. That's horrifying. That has been reduced to about 25 hours. That's significant progress, but still pretty scary for any child. The Biden administration acknowledges they still have work to do to get kids moved to family members or to sponsor homes in an expeditious manner. So that's good. Of course, Republicans have now lost interest as well, moving on to their usual phony outrage on whatever their new Christ, Tucker, points them to. Beef bans and forced mask wearing or vaccination. What a bunch of knobbleheads. Holy moly, this is a fun one. Did you see the great hue and cry over the recent reopening of the Snow White ride at Disneyland this past week? Predictably enough, folks were outraged that the prince didn't get consent before giving Snow White the true love's kiss. What these outraged folks forget is that Snow White is supposedly dead. Like, dead. Not asleep. Dead. So just how is the prince supposed to get consent from a dead person? He thinks he's giving a dead person a kiss goodbye. Snowflakes, get a shovel, shovel your snow into a high wall around you, and never come out. Disneyland, don't give in on this. For the second time in six years, Canada has launched an investigation into sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. This is on the heels of allegations against former Defence Chief General Jonathan Vance and his successor, Admiral Art MacDonald, that came to light. Questions are also circulating about how much Prime Minister Justin Trudeau knew and when, especially since General Vance was in charge of Operation Honor, the 2015 campaign Vance instituted to prevent misconduct in the military. Ironic, huh? Trudeau says his office was unaware that the Vance allegation was a Me Too complaint. Of course, the opposition conservatives don't believe that, and even dyed-in-the-wool liberals are finding that a little tough to believe. Time will tell at election time whether the belief overrides party partisanship. Between April 2016 and March 2021, 581 cases of sexual assault 
and 221 cases of sexual harassment were logged with Operation Honor. Holy fuck. 802 cases in five years. And that's only those who actually came forward because you know that there are women and men who didn't report their assault because of shame or the feeling that nothing would ever be resolved or fear of retaliation or fear that it would impede their advancement or job. Clearly, women and men who were assaulted are not being listened to. While a small number of the assaults did result in civilian or military trials and convictions, many did not. And the culture of the military from the top down has not changed, obviously. What hasn't been addressed, though, or at least I've not seen anything on it, is this. If our military cannot be trusted to treat fellow officers or fellow civilian workers within our ranks with respect, and if those members can't feel safe, you got to wonder just how they're treating women, say, in other countries while they're there. Women in Afghanistan or Africa, for instance. Just wondering. I mean, does it not stand to reason? There's a lot less recourse for women in third world countries to report them or stand up for themselves, right? Food for thought. The Canadian military culture needs to be reamed out and remade from the top down. So this inquiry, unlike the one from six years ago, which was mostly smoke and no action, needs to have teeth and needs to be implemented quickly so that the women and men of the armed forces feel safe. Period. In the last election, Georgia Republicans took some high-profile losses. With an increase of turnout among Democrats and voters of color, the state turned blue for Biden and the Senate. For Republicans still control the state government and have moved quickly to drastically limit voting procedures that were in place when they incurred those losses. Among other provisions, one of those ways was to eliminate early voting on Sundays, called Souls to the Polls, which was an initiative popular with the state's predominantly black churches. But it's not just been in Georgia. The volume of bills restricting voter access in the 38 Republican-held state legislatures is jaw-dropping. More than 230 bills have been put forward seeking to restrict voter access, all in the name of suppressing voter fraud in spite of the absence of significant fraud. In both Arizona and Iowa, for instance, there are proposals that would require not that absentee ballots be received by election day, as most states require, but that they be postmarked several days before. Arizona ballots to be postmarked by the Thursday before the election, and Iowa at least 10 days before the election. Another proposal in Arizona would be that absentee ballots be notarized. A bill in Oklahoma would allow the state legislature to select its presidential electors if there isn't a federal law requiring voter ID and paper ballots to verify election results. And it goes on and on in state after state. But on to Georgia, who we all know is suppressing the vote by including tactics such as shortening polling place hours, eliminating no-excuse absentee voting, reducing the number of polling places, 
thereby increasing wait times that are already too long, especially in minority communities, limiting early voting, and making voter ID requirements harder to meet. And now Florida is copying Georgia just this past week. Governor Ron DeSantis, who named voting security as one of his top legislative priorities this year, with nary a security problem in the state of Florida popping up in the last election, is restricting the use of drop boxes and prohibiting any actions that could influence those standing in line to vote. You know, like offering food or water to voters as they wait in line in the hot Florida sun. The bill he passed makes it harder for people to vote by mail, which is popular in Florida. In November of last year, more than 4.8 million Floridians, that's more than 40% of the fall electorate, cast mail-in ballots. I mean, heck, a couple of months ago, the governor stood in front of a podium and stated unequivocally that the state of Florida had had the most transparent and efficient election ever. What a flip-flop. The new hurdles will probably produce longer lines both during early in-person and election day voting. The legislation in Florida prohibits mobile drop boxes and it requires local election supervisors to staff all drop boxes and to allow ballots to be dropped in them only during early voting hours. Supervisors who leave a drop box accessible outside those hours are subject themselves to a civil penalty of $25,000. The bill also limits who may turn in a voter's ballot, allowing only certain family members to do so or limiting individuals to turning in the ballots of just two non-family members. What can be done? In the 23 states where Republicans control both the state legislative bodies and the governorships, including competitive states of Georgia, Arizona, Florida, Texas, and Ohio, there are ways to stop the mass disenfranchisement of voters. 1. Litigation. Use evidence of the absence of significant fraud to make the case that these are thinly disguised efforts to prevent certain groups from voting. 2. Roll back Supreme Court decisions curtailing the Voting Rights Act. 3. Have a federally funded and supervised standardization of voting rules and poll workers across states. 4. Have federal legislation ending felon disenfranchisement. If they've done their time, enough's enough. 5. Have federal oversight to guarantee election integrity. And six, peaceful protests and outrage might apply some pressure to state governments. Time will tell whether the actions to restrict voting will hurt more than the Democrat vote in the next round. Republicans on the ground are also wary that the confusion and inconvenience of the restrictions are not good for either party and that the strategy is really going to hurt the Republicans, especially with seniors and the military. And we can only wait and see what kinds of shenanigans continue to roll out in the next few months in Texas and Ohio and other states. You know I'm not wrong. For those who still haven't gotten the vaccine because they feel the vaccine was too rushed, let's talk. First, I understand the wariness. 
In the past, vaccines were based on a weakened form of the pathogen that was used to train the body's immune system to fight the infection. They have been remarkably successful in fighting diseases such as measles and polio, but they have also taken years and sometimes decades to develop. But that's not the case of the two hot rods of the COVID year, Pfizer and Moderna, which rely on a tiny piece of synthesized genetic material now known as messenger RNA. In nature, messenger RNA, or mRNA for short, serves to convey instructions inscribed in DNA and deliver them to the protein-making parts of the cell. The new vaccines use the synthesized mRNA to deliver instructions to the cell to produce the spike protein that the coronavirus uses to latch on to a cell and infect it. Then they train the body's immune system to go after them. And reaching this point is the culmination of many years of work by scientists. Scientists have known about the mRNA since 1961, but exploiting it for a medicine has been a complex task because for a long time, when injected, it would cause an inflammatory reaction. Luckily, in 2005, Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman, working at the University of Pennsylvania, figured out how to overcome this reaction. Later, they also learned how to deliver the fragile mRNA particles by encasing the mRNA in small bubbles of fat known as lipid nanoparticles. Lots of science today. So don't be concerned about the speed of the vaccines. As you can see, they've been worked on for decades. So far in the past months, as they've rolled out, we've seen that they seem to be safe and very effective. The few people who've been fully vaccinated yet still got COVID-19, about 0.06% of the population, have only experienced very mild symptoms. And that's the goal, isn't it? To keep us alive, off a ventilator, and out of the hospital. So get your vaccine. You know in your heart I'm not wrong. Thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it more than you can know. You can follow me on Facebook at But I'm Not Wrong or Instagram at Still Not Wrong or Twitter, But Not Wrong. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at stillnotwrong at gmail.com. I promise to read everything sent to me. I hope you hit subscribe on this podcast and you'll be back next week. Bye-bye.